The history of Wales is largely forgotten when we tell the story of Britain. You know, the best most people get is, finally, Edward I conquered Wales and built lots of castles which survive to this day. But it's a fascinating story that deserves to be told in its own right. Mind you, it is complicated. We're not talking about one country called Wales, but a patchwork of small kingdoms, um, Gwyneth, Powys, Dehybath being the most powerful. And often, one of them tends to dominate for a short period. And these royal families of these little kingdoms were often interrelated, and everyone has similar names, which, unless you speak Welsh, are also hard to pronounce. So because it's complicated, we've tended to avoid teaching it. But here is an opportunity for you to explore the story of Wales in a bit more detail. In a previous episode, I talked about how these little kingdoms grew out of the chaos of the Dark Ages when Romans left and the Anglo-Saxons arrived in what's now England. And we learnt how some of these kingdoms in the West had their roots right back to the tribes who'd inhabited Western Britain long before the Romans arrived. And, and the further away they were from the English, the more powerful these kingdoms tended to be, which over time favoured favored, uh, Dehybarth in the, in the southwest of, uh, of, of, uh, southwest and west of Wales, and in particular, Gwyneth in the northwest of Wales in the mountains of Snowdonia. Back just before the Norman conquest, the English had actually recognised uh, Griffith ap Llewellyn as, uh, of Gwyneth as the King of Wales, the only man to ever be so recognised by the English as the King of the whole of Wales. Mind you, that didn't stop the English under their Earl Harold Godwinson uh, having a war with him and killing him in battle. And his defeat and death threw Wales into a series of bloody feuds. And whilst the various kingdoms in Wales had descended into this sort of Balkan-style mayhem, changes were happening on the island of Britain. In 1066, William the Conqueror arrived and defeated Griffith's nemesis, Harold Godwinson, at the Battle of Hastings. And a new regime in England didn't change the historic rivalry with the Welsh. If anything, it was to make it worse, because, um, well, the Normans didn't see the Welsh as some sort of ancient feud. They merely saw them as an opportunity to, to take land from them. And, of course, the Normans liked taking land, and they were very good at it and good at fighting. In fact, by 1081, just 15 years after the Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror had marched into Dehybarth and had forced their king, Rhys, to pay him homage. Rhys's death, uh, King Rhys's death uh, 10 years later, suddenly destabilised the south of Wales. And the Normans took their opportunity to extend their influence and their land holdings across a large part of southern Wales. In the north, the flame of independence still burned. Enter Owen Gwyneth, King of Gwyneth. His 33-year reign coincided with the anarchy in England between Stephen and Matilda, which I've talked about in, a, in another episode. And just as the Normans had exploited the succession crisis in Dehybarth 40 years beforehand, now it was Owen's opportunity to extend his influence across Wales whilst the English were having their civil war between Stephen and Matilda. Owain inflicted a defeat on the Norman barons in South Wales at the outset of his reign in the 1130s, and then during the anarchy he managed to move in and capture Mould in what's now North Wales. By 1157, Matilda's son, Henry II, 
was on the English throne. But Owain didn't care. Owain defeated him at Eulo, uh, with Henry narrowly escaping uh, capture by the Welsh. And it's one of those really interesting what's-if moments. You know, if Henry had been captured, what would have been the price for his release? And how could that have changed British history? And as Henry II's son and heir was just two years old at the time, what would have happened if Henry had actually been killed in that battle at Eulo? Owain's mastery of Wales was such that he became the first Welshman to be styled Prince of Wales. Now, he wasn't just an energetic warrior. Owain is credited with fathering 21 children through his two wives and several mistresses. You know, what a boy. <laughs> and there are many who think that there were other, other children loitering around the, around the country too. One legendary son of Owain was Prince Madoc. According to some tales from sort of late, late medieval Tudor times, Prince Madoc set off with a fleet of ships uh, and over a hundred supporters to seek pastors new. And he settled in North America. Intermarrying with Native Americans, the legend arose of a tribe of Welsh Indians. Now, no one knows exactly where they settled. You know, the, the legendary stories take them anywhere from Mexico up to Canada, or, or indeed whether they ever actually made this journey in the first in the first place. You know, there is no firm archaeological evidence of this immigration or settlement. Uh, and actually, you know, it's the very figure of, of Prince Madoc is pretty shadowy, to say the least. But interestingly, um, early U.S. President Thomas Jefferson was a great believer in the story of the, the stories of the Welsh Indians. So who knows? Maybe there is a truth behind the legend. Anyway, Owen Gwyneth died in 1170. Now, just to put that into sort of some sort of context, Henry II was still on the throne of England. And that December, Thomas Becket was going to come a cropper in Canterbury Cathedral. Now are the days the Welsh are famous for their love of rugby. But back in the day, they enjoyed a good old war of succession. And Owain's death gave them the opportunity to once more participate in this na medieval national sport. Uh, a son from his first marriage ended up fighting uh, two of his half-brothers, Daffod and Rodri, from Owain's second marriage, which was incidentally to his cousin, which hadn't gone down well with the Pope. But despite the Pope's disapproval of their parents' marriage, it was Daffod and Rodri who proved victorious, killing their half-brother in battle. And then, like good brothers, they shared the kingdom of Gwyneth between them. But the dead half-brother had left a son called Llewellyn. And he, and many others, not least the church, believed he was the legitimate, rightful heir. By the time he was 16, he'd risen in revolt against his uncles. In 1194, he defeated and captured Uncle Daffith. A year later, Uncle Rodri died and... Uh, by banishing Daffith to, um, to England, Llewellyn reunited the kingdom of Gwyneth with himself on the throne. Not bad work for someone who was only 22 at the time. Since the War of Succession, after Owain's death, uh, Gwyneth had lost its dominant position in Wales to the southern kingdom of Dahibath uh, under another king called Rhys. Yet another, I told you it gets confusing with these names and the similarity and constant repetition of the names in Wales. Within two years of Llewellyn's rise to power in Gwyneth, 
King Rhys of Dybath had died, and now it was the South's turn to have a dynastic civil war, that national sport that the Welsh seemed to be participating in. And into the void stepped Llywelyn. By 1199, the year that Richard the Lionheart died and King John had inherited the English throne, Llywelyn was the preeminent ruler in Wales. He wasn't simply Llywelyn, he was Llywelyn the Great. And as he was so great, he was able to ask the hand in marriage of King John's illegitimate daughter, Joan Plantagenet. But his friendly relations with his father-in-law were not to last. After all, King John was a Plantagenet, and they were always fighting out, falling out with someone. And if they were in the family, well, so much the better. And of course, you just needed to overlay that whole ancient English-Welsh animosity thing as well. So by uh, 1211, John had invaded Gwyneth and Llywelyn had lost all his lands east of the River Conwy. But before John could snuff out Welsh independence completely, back in England the barons rose against him, uh, resulting in King John being forced to sign a peace treaty with them, the Magna Carta. And Llywelyn made common calls with those barons uh, and to, to, to put added pressure on John, he actually invaded, he recaptured his lands in the east of Gwyneth and then he invaded England, capturing the city or the town of Shrewsbury. After a reign of 45 years, Llywelyn the Great died in 1240. Fast forward 30 years, Llywelyn the Great's grandson, also a Llywelyn, was now Prince of Wales, or what remained of the independent Wales, because the English had been encroaching more and more from the south and the east. But whereas his grandfather had been Llywelyn the Great, his grandson was to bear another name, Llywelyn the Last. This Llywelyn had come to power aged 23, just six years after his grandfather's death, during the reign of Henry III in England. Henry III was one of England's longest reigning monarchs, but he was not one of its most successful. If you recall from a previous episode, Henry was faced by a powerful revolt by his barons, yet again, under a man called Simon de Montfort. And de Montfort had actually captured Henry and his son, Prince Edward, at the Battle of Lewis, and had become de facto ruler of, of England. Meanwhile, Llywelyn's reign had been marked by a civil war as well with his brothers and increasing conflict with the ever encroaching English barons, the marcher lords as they were called, in particular uh, the Mortimer family uh, and the de Clare family. Now, despite Henry regaining control in England following the defeat of de Montfort at uh, a Battle of Evesham, his position was weak and he needed as many allies and as few enemies as possible. And it was from this position of weakness that Henry recognised this Llywelyn as Prince of Wales in 1267. And then, five years later, Henry died and his son, Edward, was proclaimed King of England. Standing at a massive six foot two, this intimidating king was nicknamed Longshanks or, or Longlegs, Longshins. Longshank's size and temperament made him a natural and highly successful warrior. It was Edward, not his father Henry, who had defeated de Montfort at the Battle of Evesham. And indeed, when his father died, uh, Edward was returning home from the Crusades. And he wasn't going to acknowledge any Prince of Wales who had only been recognised by his father under duress. 
And moreover, Edward had some personal issues with Llewellyn. Firstly, as, um, as he had asserted his authority over North Wales, Llewellyn had confiscated lands belonging personally to Edward when he was a prince, given to him by his father uh, when Edward was Earl of Chester. Uh, a title, by the way, incidentally, which is still held by the heirs to the English throne, the Earl of Chester. Prince Charles, uh, Prince Charles is Earl of Chester. Secondly, members of the English royal family can't marry without the permission of the head of the family, the monarch. Well, without seeking Edward's approval, Llewellyn had got engaged to, uh, to Edward's cousin, Eleanor de Montfort, who, just to rub salt in the wounds, was the daughter of that same Simon de Montfort who had uh, imprisoned Edward and his father after the Battle of Lewis. So no love lost there between uh, Eleanor de Montfort and her, her cousin, the king, especially when she was trying to get married to his rival in North Wales without his permission. And finally, Llewellyn refused to travel to Chester to pay homage to the new king. And so in 1276, just four years into his reign, Edward declared Llewellyn, Prince of Wales, a traitor and invaded Gwyneth. Facing military defeat, Llewellyn had to concede half his kingdom to Longshanks. For six years there was peace. And then in 1282, Llewellyn's brother, Daffith, rose in rebellion against the English, uh, liberating the eastern half of, of, of Gwyneth. Despite not uh, instigating the war, Llewellyn, as Prince of Wales, felt obliged to support this war against the English. And the rebellion spread south into Powys, and it was there in December of that year that Llewellyn was killed in a battle near the market town of Boothwells. His severed head was taken to London and a crown of ivy was placed on it, mocking the ancient Welsh prophecy that a Welsh king would one day be crowned King of Britain again. And then it was displayed on a pike above the walls of the Tower of London for 15 years. The mantle was now taken up by Llewellyn's rebel brother, Daffith, but six months later he was captured and brought before King Edward at Shrewsbury, and there he was executed by being hung, drawn and quartered. In fact, he was the first nobleman to ever receive that form of execution, and so died the last independent kingdom of Wales. Edward constructed giant castles across North Wales to subjugate his conquered people. Conway, Harlech, Bomaris, Carnarfon are all there till this day. Fortified towns were, were established, like Conway, inhabited by English colonists and from which the Welsh were excluded. Administration was now modelled on the English shires with a sheriff in charge of each one. And English laws now superseded the ancient laws established by Huldar, which had governed Wales for nearly 350 years. And finally, Edward made his son and heir the new Prince of Wales. It's a hereditary title which is still held by the heir to the English throne to this day. With the demise of Gwyneth, the ancient British kingdoms that had been born in the Dark Ages when the Romans left had finally been snuffed out. But that ancient legacy was not forgotten. The humiliation still hurt. The desire for freedom lay dormant, but not dead. For over a hundred years, the Welsh waited for a new King Arthur to free them. And then, in 1400, 
he arrived. A nobleman from Corwen in North Wales, a man who through his father was descended from the ancient kings of Powys, and through his mother, the royal dynasties of Dahibath and also Llewellyn the Great himself. Owen Glyndwr. The first two years of his revolt were pretty unspectacular. I mean, simply remaining at large was like a victory of sorts for Owen. And then in 1402, the English scored a spectacular own goal. Parliament in London passed the Penal Laws for Wales, which denied Welshmen any senior office, denied them the right to bear arms, and denied them the right to assemble in public. And just for good measure, education in Wales was severely restricted. It was quite obvious that the English now wanted to treat the Welsh as second-class citizens in their own land. And the revolt roared into life across the North and Mid Wales. On the 22nd of June 1402, an English army under the Marcher Lord Sir Edmund Mortimer met Glyndwr's Welsh army at Bryn Glas in Powys. Glyndwr's troops were, were massed on a hillside and the English advanced up the hill towards them. Both sides had significant numbers of archers in their ranks. However, the height advantage you know, up on the hill enabled the Welsh archers to outshoot the English archers. So trying to up, advance uphill into this hail of arrows and not being able to successfully fire back, Mortimer's army stalled. And it was at this moment that Glyndwr sprung his trap. More Welsh troops had been hidden in the valley and now they launched a ferocious attack on the English right flank and the rear. Welsh archers in Mortimer's army had had enough and they changed sides mid-battle, suddenly firing on their former comrades. It was all over. Over 600 English troops had been killed for the loss of maybe 200 Welsh. And Mortimer himself was captured. Bringlas remains one of the greatest victories a Welsh army ever had over an English army in open battle. And it was the last. The English king, Henry IV, refused to pay a ransom to release Mortimer. And so Mortimer changed sides and threw in his lot with Glyndwr uh, to the extent that he actually married one of Owen Glyndwr's daughters. By 1403, the whole of Wales was effectively under Glyndwr's control. And the following year, 1404, he called a parliament, a Welsh parliament, at which he was crowned Prince of Wales. The high point of Owen Glyndwr's rebellion came in 1405 when he agreed a tripartite pact with Mortimer, his now son-in-law, and also Harry Hotspur, the scion of the powerful Percy family of the north of England. They agreed to combine their forces against Henry IV, and upon victory, they would divide England and Wales between them. The Mortimers would take the south of England, the Percys would have the north of England, and Glyndwr would rule an enlarged Wales, consisting of, well, Wales, naturally, but also the English counties, the border counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire, Shropshire, Cheshire, the lands that the Welsh had lost to the Anglo-Saxons nearly 800 years before. It's another one of those what-ifs in alternate history of Britain. But it wasn't to be. Harry Hotspur Percy was defeated by Henry at the Battle of Shrewsbury that year, 1405, and the, the tide started to turn against Glyndwr. By 1408, he was on the run and having to resort to guerrilla warfare against the English. A year later, his ally and son-in-law, Sir Edmund Mortimer, was killed in a skirmish. Glyndwr's own wife and children were captured and imprisoned in the Tower of London, where they died in 1413.
By then, Glyndwr had disappeared. He was last sighted by the English at a skirmish, which he won incidentally, in Brecon in 1412. And then he vanished from the pages of history. Despite huge rewards, Owen Glyndwr was never betrayed by his countrymen. Some people say that he's buried near his estates in Corwen in North Wales. Others suggest that he died hiding with one of his other daughters in Herefordshire. But many believe that like King Arthur, Owain Glyndwr is merely sleeping and will return in Wales' hour of need. History rarely has like a definite start or finish and the golden thread that ties events and people together is always weaving. And so it is with the story of Wales. For in an intriguing twist, 70 years later, a distant relative of Glyndwr's, a Welshman with blood of the royal family of de Highbath running in his veins and whose ancestors had served as, as advisors and counsellors to the kings of Gwyneth, defeated Richard III, the last of the Plantagenet kings of England at the Battle of Bosworth and had the crown of England placed upon his head. And his name? Henry Tudor, who became King Henry VII of England and Wales. And in a final intriguing twist of that golden thread, on the 25th of July, 1603, long time ahead, Henry Tudor's great-great-grandson, James VI of Scotland, was crowned King James I of England, a descendant of a Welshman, now ruled all of Britain. And maybe somewhere, the severed head of Llewellyn the Last, wearing that mocking crown of ivory, was having the last laugh after all.